Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number seven. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. Never mind it is a how long we saw You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, I'm Steve. Hi, I'm Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. We have a special treat for you today, a guest reader. Our good friend Ray Ellis will read his short story entitled, I... Also in the lineup is a poem by Larry Long, a longtime friend who now lives in Texas, and a true story from a Wyoming friend called Tattered Angel. Now, here's Ray. Hi, I'm Ray Ellis, and I'm going to read I, a short story. I begin with the following scripture. And be not afraid of them that kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Matthew 10.28, American Standard Version. Chapter 1. I was five years old. I don't even remember what the thought had come from, but there I was, sneaking around back to see if I could catch Wanda before she came out of the outhouse. The darkness pressed in on me, heavy and liquid. Although I knew I was alone, I could feel him staring at me, watching me. His gaze penetrating the darkness as easily as if it had been noon. His eyes seeing me, knowing me. Understanding my every thought even as I had formed them in my mind. The sound of dripping water echoed off what sounded like a cavernous vault. Drip, 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 teasing my thirst. My throat felt raw and parched. The stone slab I'd awakened on felt cold beneath me, but the surrounding air was hot, laced with a heavy, sticky humidity, but no water pooled, no condensation dripped from the stone walls. Standing, I hit my head on the too low ceiling. I could not rise to my full height, but had to remain crouched over from the waist. The floor, I discovered, was covered with shards of stone that cut into my bare feet as I walked hunched like Hugo, Hugo's Quasimodo, occasionally raking my head or shoulders on shards of protruding stones. I moaned with inflicted pain. Again, the tormenting sound of water dripping, unseen somewhere in the darkness, tormented me. Then the question I dreaded formed in my mind. Was I, content was I to continue like this forever? I was six years old when my grandmother told me the story of the Ten Commandments. I remember sitting on her knee in the darkened room watching the glow from the wood-burning stove dance across the soot-stained walls and the high ceiling. Grandma threw the remains of her water against the unpainted wall and pointed to the moist darkness making its way toward the floor. You see that, son? That's how death came down out of heaven on the night of the first Passover. Like a cloud from God, death reached its fingers down into Egypt and killed all the firstborn children. She spat a caramel-colored stream of tobacco juice into the open fire before continuing. All the firstborns whose mamas and daddies didn't paint the door jam with the blood. 
I swallowed as only a six-year-old could while, it bearing, by, while hearing stories of judgment and trying my best to act innocent and all the same. You think God's going to be pouring out death on us again, Grandma? I asked, feelings of desperation and fear growing in my anxious juvenile mind. She hugged me to herself, which smelled of Epsom salt and snuff, before putting me down. Nah, boy, that's why God done sent down Jesus for to die for us, so we won't have to die and go to hell. At the mention of hell, I stopped breathing. Everybody knew about hell. I found that my cell, for that's what it was, was only about ten feet by six feet across. Yet after rising from the stone slab, I could no longer find it and was forced to sit on the ragged floor. The shards and stones now cut into the flesh of my buttocks and my back as I tried to rest, too tired to continue standing in the half-crouched position. The temperature had begun to change as well, alternating in an instant from being suffocatingly hot to bone-jarring cold. And still, somewhere in the darkness, the sound of dripping water continued. From somewhere in the shadows, I began to hear voices, voices familiar, but not. Then, as if in a vision, I saw myself. I was seven years old. Come on, I said to Alex, a neighborhood friend. Put it under your shirt while I keep a lookout. A few minutes later, Alex and I sat under the shade of a huge oak, enjoying stolen fruits of labor. He passed me a share of the honey bun he'd stolen, while I passed him a bag of the plain potato chips I'd walked away with. Leaning back on our elbows, we watched the swiftly white clouds floated by and imagined strange and wonderful shapes abounding across the azure sky. What do you think? I asked into the comfortable silence. I d- 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 don't know, Alex began stuttering. Maybe we shouldn't have ought to stole this stuff. Not that stupid, I said. Besides, it's too late. Now we already ate most of it. I was talking about the clouds. What shapes do you see? Alex sat up and looked into the almost empty potato chip bag in his hand, and before handing it back to me, I see a bird, and look over there, he said, pointing excitedly. That big cloud looks like a dragon. I laughed, giving myself fully to the game of make-believe. Looks like that dragon is going to eat up that bird. Later that evening, Mrs. Jackson walked Alex all the way back to the store. She made him tell Mr. Thompson what he'd done that he'd stole some sweets and a package of pre-sweetened Kool-Aid from the store earlier that day. After he confessed, she whipped him right there in the store where everybody could watch. Earlier, Alex had gone home and bragged to his brother that he'd stolen the Kool-Aid from the store. Mrs. Jackson overheard him, and well, you know the rest. One thing I can say about old Alex, though, he never told. He kept my secret to this day, and no one ever found out that I had stolen right along with him. I was cold again. The only sound I could hear now was that of my own teeth chattering and the continual dripping of water. My feet and buttocks were hurt all the time now. I tried to lie down, tried to sleep, but I couldn't. The cold crept into me, feeling like my very bones were freezing. And then I felt I would freeze. Instantly, I was hot. Too hot. I don't know how long I've been here. It feels like forever. Time seems not to matter or even exist. I tried counting the drips of water or my steps as I paced around my cell. I always lost track, either hitting my head or forgetting the count when the temperature changed. And I'm distracted by the new sensation of agonizing discomfort.
Desperation set in. My thirst is unbearable. I had to have something, anything to drink. Lifting my hacked and sliced feet to my mouth, I attempted to drink my own blood, only to find the cuts had not produced any bleeding, but dry lacerations only. In anguish, I cried out, my first words spoken aloud since waking in this vile place, only to find them absorbed and sucked away into the darkness. I was alone, without even the comfort of my own voice. Again, a memory came. I was nine years old. Chapter 2 Heat, Cold, Thirst, Pain These are my constant companions, and the darkness, and all the time, him. Even in the heavy gloom, I feel him staring at me, watching me, but never speaking. Anxiety gnawed at me like rats chewing on a wall, ripping and opening. Finally, I could take it no longer. I jumped to my feet, preparing for the fight. With an abruptness born of pain, I crumbled after striking my head against the low ceiling. I could feel where the protuberance had gouged into my scalp. The burning pain seared through the layers of my skin and struck bone. Dropping to the floor, curling to fetal position, I scraped my arms and legs and backs across a jacket rocket, jacket rocket, rocky surface. I screamed in pain. Face me, I yelled into the darkness. Come out and face me. You have no right to treat me like this. I've done nothing wrong. My voice was sucked away. Had I spoken aloud? Or was it only my mind? Who are you? I screamed. I screamed it again and again, over and over. Still nothing. Nothing but the incessant dripping of the unseen, unsearchable water. My throat burned and ached in dryness. I couldn't believe my luck. They were finally going to let me join in. You go get some Kool-Aid from the porch, Leroy. One of the older teens told me. Lucky for me, I knew how to get Kool-Aid. All around me, other kids my age, some older, were being given instructions. Some were told to get things from the store, like me, while others were told to bring food from the surrounding farmer's fields. At last, night fell. With it, the bonfire was lit, and the party began. Grabbing a number three galvanized tub from one of the back porches, I dragged it beneath the standing faucet and began filling with water. We dropped packet after packet of stolen Kool-Aid and beneath the running water and watched as a secret ingredient was added. Someone had either bought or stolen several bottles of Johnny Walker whiskey and added to the Kool-Aid and made it the star attraction of the bedraggled meal of highlight of the summer block party. The empty field behind my house was alive with several small fires, some cooking corn while others were used for roasting or boiling hot dogs, minus the buns. Watermelons were burst and broken open and served in chunks. The hunting lyrics of the Temptations' runaway child thumped in the way only Motown could on a summer night out on the stars. People danced, laughed, and loved. I stood in the shadows just outside the ring of fire and watched as the people I knew as family and friends played together. In a pile off to my left stood the stacks of debris, corn hucks yet to be burned, food packagings, and melon rinds. I smiled. One of the reasons I had been invited was because of my ability to get certain things. What do you think? I asked one of the younger ones. His eyes as big as my own. Frankie nodded his head. The flicker of red-orange firelight reflected in his brown orbs. Yeah, 
It sounded more like a protracted sigh than a spoken word. I knew exactly what he was thinking when his eyes fell on the proof of the pilfered food. But he was wrong. The farmers and the stores could never miss the little bits we had taken. Besides, it was only right that we got our little bit. The silence wore on me. Was there anyone else in this place? Or was I doomed to be alone forever? That couldn't be forever. That couldn't be. Forever denoted time. I don't know how I knew, but I knew time didn't matter here. It simply didn't exist. The song service ended like most, with the pastor offering the invitation to join the church. Why not tonight, he cried, echoing the refrain from the old hymn. If you hear the spirits calling, don't put it off. He raised both arms above his head, the oversized sleeves hanging from his wrist and flapping like the gull wings. Come on, you, he pointed over the congregation. I leaned over to my little brother and snicker. I think he's talking to you. Nah, you, you the big devil. He answered with, and we both laughed. That is, until mom reached over and pinched us. She cut her eyes at us, giving us the look. You boys better pay attention, she whispered through clenched teeth. You never know. This may be your last chance, responded Jesus. Mom said, her face now serene. I looked at my brother and rolled my eyes, careful not to let mama see me. We smiled at each other after she turned her face forward. When the services had ended, we ran from the air-conditioned building into the bright summer sun, momentarily blinded by its brightness. After the short run home, we jumped, whooping and yelling from the back porch after getting into our play clothes and headed to the playground. At 13, I was not the tallest, but I was stocky and well-built for my age. Leaning back against the rough bark of a large pecan tree, I hesitated as Jimmy, a neighborhood friend, passed me the joint. I'd never smoked marijuana before and wasn't really sure if I wanted to. After all, I was a good church-going boy. Hey, you don't have to if you don't want to, but it's here if you want Jimmy said. I looked at my little brother who stood staring at me with watching tenacity. None for you, little brother, I said, rubbing my fingers through his woolly hair before accepting the proffered joint. Tentatively, I placed the hand-rolled cigarette to my lips. Careful to hold it pinched between my index finger and thumb, imitating my cousin and the older teens, I inhaled, sucking the sweet-smelling smoke deep into my lungs, holding it in as long as I could. The heated smoke burned the back of my throat. I coughed and then gagged before passing the joint back to Jimmy. Jimmy now laughed, and he slapped me on my back after I completed my initiation. Just as the buzz reached my head, I looked at my little brother. His eyes were wide, but without the glowing admiration I had come, become accustomed to, this time I saw disappointment and sadness as his faith and belief in me had proven vain. Why are you showing me this? I know what I did. I told him not to use drugs. I rubbed my hands over my face, pulling my cheeks and, and clawing at my scalp, trying to remove the feeling of grime and filth that covered me. You can't, you can't blame me for his choices. Still, he ignored me. Now my cell was cold. I could feel ice crystals growing, crawling along the walls of my lungs. Thirst pulled at me, burned in my throat, and a hunger gnawed at my stomach. I tried to sleep, tried to ignore the pain just to pass time. But beneath me, the floor grew hot, the sharp stones feeling like teeth cutting into my flesh. My joints began to stiffen, my fingers refusing to bend and flex despite my trying, defying my constant efforts. 
Unable to find peace, even in sleep, I stood again and hobbled around my cell. What must have been hours, I walked around and around, circling the small enclosure. Drip, drip, drip. The sound of water seemed closer, but might as well have been a thousand miles away. My stomach growled. I could smell chicken frying various seasons of garlic and salt and black pepper mixing together reminding me of Sunday afternoon dinners. My throat burned. Unable even to moisten with spit from my mouth, hunger was a physical pain pulling at my gut, demanding to be satisfied, only to be denied. What did you do with my grace? The voice itself was a presence. It echoed in my brain, becoming a pressure, forcing itself against me. Get out of my head, I yelled. Scurrying to the corner, I hid my face, ignoring the painful lacerations. I buried my head into the right angle. I had to get away from him. Again, the voice came, as if from the wall, only a breath away from my face. The voice brushed against me like a whispered kiss, yet I fell backwards onto the floor, screaming. I scampered backwards as far as the small cell would allow. Get out of my head! Get out of my head! I don't want you! Go away! The voice came again. I loved you and gave my life for you, it said. The silence returned, and immediately I missed the voice. I loathed it, yet I missed it. I screamed against the void created by the absence of the voice. With my knees pulled against my chest and my back against the wall, I cried waterless tears. Chapter 3 Darkness pressed in on me like a physical force, crushing my chest, making each breath a tragic battle. The voice had gone. Rubbing my face with scarred, rutted hands, I sighed in relief to be free of the voice. The heated stones gnawed into my back and cut into my feet. Like many times, as in my past, I figured I could get used to any situation and in time overcome it. I was wrong. The heat increased, sucking the breath from my lungs. I tried to stand, fumbling. I reached out for the wall. My legs became weak from the lack of oxygen. I screamed and fell. The floor was ice. Come on, hurry! I fled from the house, adjusting my shirt as I ran. I jumped off the back porch and ran toward the waiting car. Eric smiled as I closed the door, and we sped away. The loud thumping of the bass faded along with the sounds of the house party as the car turned the corner and slipped into the night. He laughed. Man, your mom was mad. I looked at him, then at the window, and continued fixing the buttons on my shirt. I sent her to another party three blocks away, but it won't take her long to figure out it's the wrong one. He looked at me and shook his head. You don't even care, do you? When I, when I still didn't respond, he turned back to the road and kept driving. After being dropped off at home, I hurried to my bedroom and curled up on my bed, pulling the blankets over my head and deepening my breathing as if asleep. Shortly thereafter, my mom came into the room and flicked on the light. Groaning, I rolled away from the light and feigned sleep. You're not fooling me, boy. I know you ain't sleep, my mother said in that stage of anger that grips a parent's heart where once fear had been relieved. I told you to come home by midnight. It's almost three in the morning. Finally, I rolled over to face her, still pretending to be waking. What? I've been home. You weren't here when I got back. Don't lie to me. 
I sat up revealing my bare chest, but still dressed from the waist down. Mom, what are you talking about? I've been in bed. I knew she couldn't prove I hadn't. Below me on the bottom bunk, my brother stared and began mumbling his sleep. He would be no help to her. We're not going through with this. We'll talk in the morning. She turned off the light and left the room. I knew I should feel bad, but for now, I was just glad she had not used the belt she carried in her hand. Smiling, I rolled over and settled to the pillow, preparing for a sleep for real this time. Darkness, cold, heat, intense heat, the return of cold, silence, but the voice and the speaker remained absent. I was finally a senior, and graduation was a week away. We had it all planned out. Immediately following the graduation ceremony, we both skipped out on a family parties and one of our own design. The Sunday morning before graduation, Pastor Johnson stood in the pulpit preparing to deliver his backlord sermon. He stared at the six of us, four girls, Eric and I. We smiled and exchanged sly glances. Lifting the white towel against his dark face, he wiped the sheen of sweat that glistened on his brow, just above his full lips. He inhaled and swept a hand across his body, indicating the six of us in blue and red and gold graduate robes. There was one there was one who thought he could come out and run the plans of God. Jonah was his name. I could tell by the way he was getting wound up, he would be a while. Besides, if I heard one message about some poor soul getting slapped down because he didn't do something God had told him, I'd heard a million. Anyway, I was okay. I spent my entire life in church, not like those poor saps that spent their Sunday morning standing on the street corner and moaning while trying to get over a hangover from the night before. I sighed and settled in for a long, long afternoon. As the day in question arrived, Eric, his usual self, slowed to decide and needing to be shown the way. Come on, I encouraged him. He looked at me and then back at his mother, sitting around the table with the rest of the family. Finally, he nodded his head and let the screen door close softly behind him. This time, I was driving. A good thing, too, because we all knew how Eric got once he'd been drinking. And if our plans went the way we sat, then there would be a whole lot of drinking going on tonight. I slowed the vehicle, a brown over brown 1972 four-door four LTD. Eric got out and opened the rear door. Hey, ladies, been waiting long, I asked purposely adding a sense of smoothness and what I hoped was enticement to my voice. I don't know, Deborah said, leaning forward, allowing us both to view her ample cleavage. Somebody promised me a party tonight, and I'm ready to romp. Her friend Sarah held herself in reserve, not as forward as her very earthly friend. I thought I'd have to sample them both. Eric ushered Deborah into the front seat, and I followed Sarah into the rear. I met her gaze, and she followed, and she allowed herself to be seated, before turning my full attention to the curvaceous and willing form that was Deborah. After parking out near the lake and enjoying all the carnal delights that came as a package deal with Deborah, I decided to take a short walk near the tree line. There, I found Sarah sitting on a fallen log, just beyond where the water pipe fed the lake from the deep well underground. Silver moonlight reflected off the mirror surface of the water as shimmering stars danced in the chorus of overhead. From the far side of the lake, conifer trees stretched limbs heavenward in the inverted sky as their image reflected across the still surface of the water. I walked to where she sat, reclined on the log, and nestled close to her, 
She smiled, and I brushed the side of her face with the back of my knuckle. Her breath caught. Once our appetites for passion had been filled, we returned to the car only to find that both Eric and Deborah sat waiting and looking for us. Man, Eric began, that's low even for you. What? I played my usual innocent self. He didn't challenge me. He never did. Instead, he simply shook his head and turned away. I walked over to Deborah and pulled her into my embrace. She stiffened before surrendering to me, as I knew she would. Pushing her away to arm's length, I looked into her eyes. I thought you wanted to party. I'm here. Let the party begin. Sarah started some music on the car stereo, and I took Deborah's hand, and we began to dance. The beat of the music intensified, and I began to spin and twirl around like a child playing helicopter. I began to feel lightheaded from too much smoke and wine. Dancing, I laughed out loud, spinning until I collapsed from exhaustion. Crumbling to the floor, I screamed. Hot stones tore into my flesh. The voice had returned. I called to you, but you would not come. Get out of my head! I played for you, but you would not dance to my music. Leave me alone! I shed my blood for you, but you drank instead the wine of the world until you became drunk with her violence. Leave me alone! I loved you. I don't want your love! I love you still. I cursed. Leave me alone. Get out of my head. The voice left me, and the oppressive silence returned. As much as I hated the sound of his voice, I longed for it. I missed it deeply, as if my heart had been made to sing its chorus. I rolled to my knees and bit back another curse as the hot stones gouged into my kneecaps. I would not give him the pleasure of my tears. What do you want from me? I yelled into the darkness. My throat burned from thirst and still the sound of water continued dripping unseen in the darkness. What do you want? Do you want me to admit that you were right? That you won? I forced myself to stand in my Quasimodo crouch and shuffled around my cell. I didn't force Eric to come with me and both those girls got exactly what they wanted. Me. A dry crackling sound filled my head and I realized I was laughing. That's it, isn't it? You're jealous that those people chose me instead of you. That they loved me more than they loved you. Ha! I pointed a ripped and torn finger toward the ceiling. I beat you, and there's not a thing you can do about it. You are a blind leader of the blind, and if you are blind, then you and those who followed you will fall into a ditch. I turned, looking for someone to hit and punch the wall instead. I felt the bone of my knuckles snap and the pain added to the inventory that was already building. I didn't do so bad. I was successful, I said defiantly. The darkness began to fade, going deeper somehow. I rubbed my eyes and when I looked up again, I could see. I looked at my face and found that I was looking at the shoulder of a woman's black dress. It was Mrs. Swift, Eric's mother. Looking beyond her, I saw Eric, or rather his body, he lay in an open casket, his glove hands folded neatly across his chest. The charcoal gray suit had been his favorite. The mortician had done a great job. The bullet wound that had ended his life was barely visible beneath the makeup. As I made my way back to my seat, I remember how Eric had told me he was going to see Sarah. He was so sure of himself. Don't do it, I said. I expected him to challenge me, but he didn't. 
He stood in front of me, his feet shoulder width apart, and squared his shoulders. Lifting his chin slightly, he asked, What? You, you're the only one that can get with that? He poked my chest with his hand. What? She too good for me or something? He was angry. No, no, man. It's not like that. She's not good enough for you. You remember graduation night at the lake? I thought she was all that back then. But that girl laid down with anyone with a baggie or a bottle. He erumped. Well, I guess it's my turn, huh? He buttoned his shirt, rubbed cologne onto his face, and he turned and smiled at me. Reaching to my pocket, I threw him a pack of condoms. At least use protection, fool, I said, chiding him. He smiled at my use of the name we had for each other whenever one of us was doing something risky. It turned out that it wasn't the kind of protection he needed. Sarah's estranged boyfriend, fresh out, of, fresh out of prison, carrying a grudge against the world, had discovered them together and shot them both. Eric had not survived. My vision darkened and the cold, blistering cold returned. You can't blame me for that, I cried in my defense against the darkness, shaking my fist and pointing at the ceiling. I screamed, you judge me unfair. How can you blame me for what Eric did? He was a grown man. I cursed the voice. Like a wet garment, the silence hung heavy on me. I could feel his presence. It pressed against me. Even his silence was a judgment against me. I could feel his eyes born into me, seeing my very soul, my thoughts, my imaginations. None of it hidden from him. I have known you. I turned my back to the sound of that voice. Whether you were sitting down or rising from your bed, I have seen you. I covered my ears with my hands and screamed, trying to drown out the sound of his voice, his words cutting me as sure as the stones on the floor and the walls. You don't understand what? I have understood your, your very thoughts, even as they formed in your heart. Clenching both fists, I shook them in his face. You don't know me. I have watched over your path, and I know all your ways. Get out of my head. Get out of my head. Get out. Get out. Get out. There is not a word you have spoken that I did not know it altogether. I have been behind and in front of you. I have called you and you would not listen. I screamed and I cursed him. You, you judged me guilty, but your knowledge was too wonderful for me. It was too high. I could not understand it. You are not fair. Where could you go and be free of my presence? Even here, I am with you. The sound of his voice was driving me driving me. I felt pushed, caught, corralled. I stood and tried to walk away from the voice, but the cell offered me no escape. The voice continued. If you had ascended up into heaven, I am there. While you make your bed here, behold, I am still here. Leave me alone. Even if you had taken the wings of the morning and dwelt in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there you would have had to contend with me. Oh, I ran my head against the wall, trying to rid myself of that voice, but nothing helped. Nothing stopped it. It echoed in my mind from the very surround air surrounding me. The sound of the accursed dripping continued adding to my torment, and still he would not shut up. Even when you attempted to hide in the darkness, my eyes beheld you. The cover of the night shone as the day around you. I saw all that you did. Falling to the floor, I curled into a ball trying to hide from him now. 
When I formed you in your mother's womb, even there I called you. Go away. Leave me. Leave me alone. Leave me. For a brief moment, the silence returned. The voice left me, and almost immediately I missed it. I longed for it and hated it at all the same time. I sent you my messengers, and you would not hear them. He had returned. You spoke wickedness and took my name in vain. I rolled to my back, ignoring the pain in my back for the greater pain in my head and in my heart. Please forgive me. I'm sorry. And then, will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. His words had hit me like a physical blow, and then the heat returned. I watched her walking toward me, the very essence of feminine beauty. The gossamer veil covering her face could not hide the radiance of her smile. As she passed the crowd which stood to either side of the aisle, they turned and followed her with their eyes and smiles. When she stopped before me, I felt my heart would burst for having won her. You may kiss your bride. These words began what should have been the most wonderful part of my life. When I broke the kiss, I knew deep in my heart what love really was. When I held her in my arms, I felt alive. With her, I felt complete. No! I screamed. He was taking the vision from me. All around the darkness whirled like a cloud of dust, and the scene began to fade, then change. When I looked again, I was holding a different woman in my arms and tasting her lips. How long before your flight takes off? The strange woman whispered. Oh, I have an hour. Good. Good? I asked, puzzled yet hopeful. She flashed a coarse, seductive smile. Good. Then we have time. She never finished her sentence. The voice returned. Yet still I loved you. Still I would have forgiven you. But you would have none of me. Intense heat flashed to cold and then back to heat again. The temperature changing so fast I couldn't even begin to adjust. My continuous state was pain and discomfort. Dad? The look on my son's face was one of unbelief and pain, then shame. I released the woman that was not his mother and stood stepping away from the young lady who appeared to be barely older than my son's date. Son, what are you, what are you doing here? I looked around the restaurant as if just seeing it for the first time. I looked past him at the door, hoping his mother wasn't with him. She's not here. She's where you should be. Wait, boy, you don't talk to me like, no, you don't. You don't have the right to talk to me like you're a father. Not now. You should be home with your wife. And I find you out here with this, this. He pointed at the woman who was still sitting at the table. Son, I can explain. You can explain that you're cheating on mom. I grabbed my son by his bicep and pulled him away from the table, leaving his date looking down at my own. The two women scrutinized each other. Either of them could easily have stood as the target of my son's affection. Both remained in awkward silence. Son, you can't tell your mother about this, I began. He snatched his arm away from me. You want me to lie for you? To, to, to cover for you? His fists clenched and unclenched as he stiffened his arms at his sides. Don't be a fool, boy. This would kill your mother if she found out. I looked over his shoulder at the two twenty-something ladies at the table and smiled. My date smiled and waved back at me. This is bigger than either you or me. It's not even about me. This is about your mom. You can't tell her. 
I relaxed when I saw his shoulders sink and his hands lying flat near the seams of his trousers. I knew then he understood. God help me. I hate you right now. I understand. Don't get me wrong, son. I'll make this right with God. I started back toward the table, then stopped. I'll do right by your mom, too. Don't worry. He dropped his chin and shook his head in slow, defeated motions. He slumped against the wall and covered his face with his hands. I made my way back to the table, careful to fix my smile and look of congealed control in place. When my son first brushed past me, grabbing his date's hand, I thought he intended to fight me. But true to his word, he simply turned and stalked away. Smiling at the very young lady sitting across from me, I reached forward and stroked the backs of her knuckles with my index finger. She looked past me toward the exit. I lifted her hand, ignoring the ring on my left index finger, and kissed it. Don't worry, he's a smart boy. He'll do the right thing. Chapter 4 Therefore, you are inexcusable, old man, you who judge others. But when you judge others, you condemn yourself. You did the same things. I was back in my cell, back in the dark, back again with his voice. I took care of my wife. I screamed. She had a great house and money in the bank. We took vacations every summer. She always had a nice car. I got her a new car every other year. I paid my tithes regularly, gave huge offerings. Ask the reverend. He'll tell you all the stuff I did for that. But you were sure, confident in yourself and in your own judgments of self-righteous duties. I stood up and ran my head on the too low ceiling. You see, even you admit it yourself. I did serve you. You thought and you still believe. You will escape the judgment of God because you have somehow earned your way into my father's grace. My shoulders drooped as I saw my latest plan. My latest hope had come to nothing. But but you just said I did all those wonderful things. I was beginning to sound pitiful even to myself. You despised the riches of my father's goodness and forbearance and long suffering and thought his goodness was a license for you to continue in your sin. But I... But you did not understand that the goodness of God was meant to lead you to repentance. But I, but after the hardness of your impenitent heart, you have treasured up wrath for yourself for the day of wrath, for the righteous judgment of God will be poured out upon you according to your deeds. But, but, but I was, son of man, you stand guilty. I collapsed in a ball on the rough sharpened floor and once again cried waterless tears. Deep, quaking sobs racked my body, and despite the heat, I could feel the cold tendrils of fear clutched at the squeeze and squeeze at my heart. For the first time since I'd awakened in this nightmare existence, a faint light began to show in my cell. In spite of myself, I walked toward the light, drawn by it. As I walked, I suddenly became aware of a sea of people around me. All at once, I was just one in a vast multitude of humanity. Of course, I didn't, I didn't know what I looked like, but I imagine I must have looked just like the souls around me. The crowd all moved forward as one. Fear hung like a cloud over us, like tendrils of oily smoke. Dread wrapped around us and pulled us forward, forcing us all down on our knees before the light that rose before us. I don't know how I saw it. From what seemed like many miles away, I could see in the midst of the light stood a solitary figure, But this man, sitting on the great throne, looked like no man I'd ever seen before. 
The throne shone white with an intense luminescence. His eyes, even from this distance, pierced me as surely as if he had been spears. In desperation, I looked around for a place to hide, for somewhere to flee, but no escape was available. I was but one person in a sea of terrified flesh. Even before he spoke, I knew how his voice would sound. It would be the voice, the same voice I had spent a lifetime ignoring and practicing and pretending not to hear. This same, very same voice had been my only companion in the dark cell. Now the owner of that voice stood staring down at me. Standing beside him was another man, less glorious than the first, but still astonishing in his own, who held a giant blood-red book in his hand, and in his gilded pages seemed to absorb the light from the man who held it, concentrated it like a lantern and amplified it out into the ocean of upturned, expectant faces. Everything inside me feared what was inside that book. As the angel standing beside the throne, for that's undoubtedly what it was, began to open the book, a cry of bewailing moans rose from the crowd. Cries turned to cursing and then muttered down into pleading. One voice rose above the cacophony of sounds, vow cursing and swearing directed at the one seated on the throne. As I wonder who it was who would have the audacity to speak to one so obviously holy and full of power, I realized the voice was my own. The angel turned his loveless attention on me. Hatred so intense, I could feel his press against me. He pointed one finger at me and with the other traced down the page, and I knew he was looking for my name in that book. Without speaking, he turned and looked at the one seated on the throne and shook his head, then closed the book. Even as the seated one opened his mouth to speak, I cried out, But I gave your, but I gave your name. I, I fed the poor in your name. I paid for missionary trips. Uh, I even helped pay for the pastor's retirement trip. I Depart from me, you work of iniquity. I never knew you. But I... Thanks, Ray. Uh, wow, that's... It's great to hear Ray read his own writing. That's, uh, I'm glad he could do that. Thank you, Ray, for doing that. Uh, you want to go to his website to see more. It's nccpublishing.com. That's nccpublishing.com. You see more of his stories and about his, about his publishing company. I'm going to read Larry Long's uh, poem called Windy Grace now. Um, it's by Larry L. Long, Windy Grace. Our sail hangs limp upon the mast, there looking for fresh wind, at last to move us toward its leeward goal, away from safe, away from shoal. The crew, prepared to trim the sail, is waiting for the slightest gale. But whence the wind, we cannot say. It blows unseen and without pay. Not else to do but kneel and pray. Good Father, blow and don't delay. We long to fly, to win the race, thrust forward by your windy grace. We'll do our part, make sound the ship, but ne'er you come, ne'er leave the slip. We'll work and struggle soon to go, but nowhere sail unless you blow. 
Blow, spirit, blow, come fill our sail. Move us along, your winds prevail. Your destination is our end. O Holy Spirit, fill and send. My friend Diane told me the story about her infant daughter. I titled it Tattered Angel. Diane's youngest daughter was born with bleeding ulcers, which her doctors did not know how to treat. One morning, as the anxious mother sat in the hospital nursery, watching blood flow into her baby's tiny body, a strange man appeared in the doorway. His clothes were dirty and torn, and a grungy hat flopped over his grimy face. She turned away, determined to ignore the slovenly man, but he walked directly to her and asked, "'Do you want me to pray for your baby?' She hesitated for only a moment before responding. I can use all the help I can get. Then, Diane says, he prayed the most beautiful, positive prayer I had ever heard. Let her be completely well, Lord, with no problems again. Don't let any other part of her body be hurt. With that, he turned and left the nursery. His prayer was so clear and precise, Diane says, and such a strong sensation of peace came over me that I fell asleep. Shortly after, a nurse woke me to tell me the bleeding had stopped. Diane never saw the man again, and her daughter, now grown with children of her own, never had another ulcer. We'll end with this quotation from Jeff Foxworthy. We sing about God because we believe in Him. We are not trying to offend anybody, but the evidence that we have seen of Him in our small little lives trumps your opinion about whether or not He exists. Quote from Jeff Foxworthy. Thanks for listening, and many thanks to Ray for sharing I with us and driving across town to record a story for your listening pleasure. We're out of here. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon best-selling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.